Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Red Letter Christians Book Club for August. And it's um, we're going to let the folks in here on Zoom. Uh, in case y'all don't know, some of y'all are watching on Facebook or YouTube. If you join the, the Zoom link, you can actually be in here and we can see you in the chat. We're going to have a little after party with some of the folks on Zoom. So uh, thank y'all for joining any way that you can. And I'm sure some of you are watching the recording after the live stream. But the book we're talking about tonight is Unsettling Truths by Sung Shan Ra and Mark Charles. Both of them are here tonight. Both of them are also friends. Uh, we've done stuff together through Red Letter Christians, through uh, all kinds of other organizations too. Uh, and, and I'll be honest, this is one of those things where when you're friends with somebody, you've heard them speak like six or eight times, <laughs> you, you like kind of feel like you've read their book, but not, but I actually did, you guys. I, I like went page by page. I devoured it. Um, There's a test later, by the way. So just, just be ready. <laughs> I'm very confident in my testing ability on your book. Uh, but first of all, before we get going too much and introduce Sunshine and Mark, uh, I want to recognize that I'm in Tennessee, in case you can't tell. I got like some uh, deer antlers behind me. I'm in my uncle and aunt's house in Tennessee. But traditionally, this is uh, especially where I am here is, is Cherokee land. And in fact, I took a little pilgrimage to the space where um, it, it's believed that the Trail of Tears began from here. And there's actually no memorial uh, that I could find anywhere there. And so I, you know, spent some time there just um, thinking about the beauty of the land and also um, the pain of that history. So that's that's uh, where I'm coming from this this evening. And I'm so excited to be with both y'all. Let me um also say, as I'm introducing you, that as, if you all did your homework and read it, you know that they kind of bookend this book, Unsettling Truths, with their own story. And as much as this is about history, it's also about relationship and it's about people's stories. So I want you to each feel free to take as much space as you want to, to let folks know about you and also like how your story uh, put this fire in your bones, you know, to write this particular book. So why don't we start with you, Sunshine, and then, Mark, you, you can uh, go next. So, Sure. Well, I always like to start with the story of uh, what it was like to co-author the book with Mark. So I said at the beginning, either we're going to be the best of friends or the worst of enemies by the time we get this book written. Uh, I'm going to let you decide which one we are. <laughs> no, we've actually become the closest of friends. The book brought us together. I don't know if a lot of co-authors can say that, but I can say that with a great deal of confidence. Mark's been a very dear, not just a writing partner, but a friend, a pastor in many ways. I'm very thankful for the chance to have uh, uh, done this work with Mark. Uh, my personal background is that I'm a Korean immigrant um, and grew up in a, in a inner city neighborhood in Baltimore, in a, in a, in a single parent family and grew up poor in, in Baltimore. Um, and grew up in a multi-ethnic neighborhood, but never understood why the people in that neighborhood couldn't get along. Uh, we had poverty in common. We were all poor, uh, but they, we were at each other's throats, or there were gang fights along racial lines, or there were beefs that were kind of split along racial, ethnic, cultural lines. Uh, so a lot of my academic work and my pastoral work has been trying to figure some of that out. How do we get along better? Um, and one of the things about this particular book was uh, recognizing that the, the truth is a good step in that direction. Uh, I think there are places where we want to avoid the truth or avoid um, engaging some difficult realities, or as the title says, unsettling truths, truths that might upset us. Uh, but learning the truth, speaking the truth, teaching the truth, and sharing in that truth, even if it's a difficult one, uh, is an important step towards 
the healing and reconciliation and justice that I think many of us are seeking. Mm -hmm. uh, so for me, as a, both an academic and as a pastor over the last several years, um, I really want to seek God's reconciliation in these things. And I think one of the most important first steps is to seek truth. And that was one of the things that kind of came into the book with, what is the truth that we need to learn together? Mm, the truth will set us free. I think that, that's something that was hitting me, you know, as I was reading it. Mark? Yeah, well, thank you, Shane. Uh, please allow me to introduce myself. So, Yate, Mark Charles, Yenishia, Sin Bekei Dene, Nishle, the Tohiglini Bashishin, Sin Bekei Dene, Dashiche, the Tohichini, Dashinella. In our Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans and we're matrilineal as a people. So our identities come from our mother's mother. My mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage, and that's why I say loosely translated, that means I'm from the wooden shoe people. My second clan, my father's mother, is Higlini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, um, my my father's my mother's father is also Tsinbekedene. And then my fourth clan, my father's father is Totochitni, which is the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. I always um, tell people I am a dual citizen of the United States and the Navajo Nation. I moved from our land in the Southwest, uh, Denete, the Navajo Nation, uh, to Washington, D.C. about six years ago. And D.C., as it's now known, is the traditional land of the Piscataway. And so I want to honor and acknowledge the Piscataway as the host peoples of these lands. They were here long before Columbus got lost at sea, and they are still here. Um, I want to publicly state how humbled I am to be living on these lands, and I want to thank the Piscataway people for their hundreds, even thousands of years of stewarding these lands. Um, this book, I, I, I love the story that Sing Chan tells because he's absolutely right. We became the best of friends writing this book. And one of the things that I've become more convinced of, not only before this book, but since we wrote it, is this book, two things. One is that very early on in the writing process, Sung Chan decided and actually stated that he wanted my voice and my story to be central. And he wanted to provide some of the backup and, and um, to add things where, where um, he really felt they needed to be added. But he wanted my voice and my story to be central. And I'm very humbled and grateful for that. And so you will see that throughout the book, um, my story gets told a lot more frequently, um, especially on my, my Navajo side of the family. And then the other thing is um, I have gone through tremendous lengths over my adult life to maintain the integrity and to maintain the freedom to speak the truth. Um, I've kept myself clear of financial ties from organizations. I've kept myself clear from having any one organization um, provide my livelihood or fund my work entirely. Uh, I work very hard to have those, my, my income come from diverse places so that no one group or person or entity can say, you can't say that. And I've had a lot of people over the years say, you can't <laughs> say that. And I tell them, well, I may not say it on your state, but I'm absolutely going to say it because I don't work for you and you know you may not put me on your stage, but I'm gonna say it somewhere else. And so that's been a very high priority for me most of my adult life, especially as I've gotten into this work around the doctrine of discovery. And so there are very few people who I would trust to write a book like this with me. Someone who not only has um, a very good writing style and is able to, um, to captivate the readers, but also someone who is not afraid to tell the truth and to lay things out the way they are. And Sung Chan does that very well. And I think his voice in this book really enhanced some of the most difficult truths we were trying to bring out. Mm. And I remember there was one point where um, I, I love the research that Sung Chan brings into this and his ability to bring in kind of the academic research. And I had been working on um, the, the history of uh, the Supreme Court cases for a long time. And I had found references to it, it in different Supreme Court opinions. I'd read those opinions um, and I've done all that research. But I knew it needed to have some of those bolts tightened and it had to have some more background research into that. 
And I remember the day when I opened up the manuscript and I realized that Soong Chan had gone through those three or, or one or two chapters of the, uh, of the Supreme Court cases and just added a ton of background research and brought in a lot of different authors and just really tightened up that whole area. And it was, I almost wanted to cry. I was so excited when that happened. And so um, Sung Chan's, A, his commitment to speaking not only truthfully, but prophetically, and his ability to, to bring in the academic and the, the research side of it in a way that adds to the narrative and the story and doesn't detract from it. And so, yeah, there are few, very few people I would have trusted to do a project like this. And Sung Chan is one of them. And even after this project's over, I'm even more convinced that his ability to, to uh, bring these things out is tremendous. And so I was deeply grateful to go through this project with him. So we, yeah, I kept, I kept thinking inner varsity press, man, you guys got away with some stuff with this book, but anyway, I, I, cause I, oh, know, there's I, a story there too. We had two <laughs> offers. We had two offers from different publishers and uh, we both had a relationship with Ivy press Yep, and we had some history with Ivy press and we decided to go with them because we felt like they would edit us the least. Mm -hmm. mm. Mm, and yeah. I like I, I've talked to some authors who, you know, I they give me their manuscript or they 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 send me their book and they're like, here's my book. It's not what I wrote, right? Mm -hmm. the, through the editing process, it was a really difficult process. And this isn't the book I, I really wanted to put out there. And I can say with complete confidence, the book that people are reading on selling truths, this version that you have in front of you is absolutely the book we wrote. And it's yeah. the message we wanted people to get. And so, yeah, yeah we, we actually chose IVP because we thought we would get edited the least. And uh, we, we were able to say what we felt we needed yes. to say. Yes. Sweet. Very high praise for the publisher. Well, and I've, I've worked with them, too. I think, Al, you, you were working with, right? Like we, we've had yep. uh, some, some mutual friends there. Well, let's dive into some of it. And if y'all didn't do your homework, it's all right. We're not, we're, we're not going to quiz you tonight. But the, that's the, fail. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, I was going to tell a story about that, but I'm going to just hold off. Okay, so the uh, the ongoing dehumanizing legacy of the doctrine of discovery—that's the subtitle. And I think some folks, you know, might vaguely remember the doctrine of discovery from history class, or may not have even thought about it. So there's obviously a whole lot of depth that you go in, into, but give, give us just a cliff notes, you know, the elevator version okay. of a hi history of the doctrine of discovery. So folks can, you know, cause we're going to talk about that. So folks are, are at least at a starting point with it. The doctrine of discovery very quickly. It's a series of papal bulls, edicts of the Catholic church. Um, they say things like invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever, reduce their persons to perpetual slavery, convert them to his and to their use and profit. The series of papal bulls written between um, 1452 and 1493, it's basically the church in Europe saying to the nations of Europe, wherever you go, whatever lands you find not ruled by white European Christian rulers, those people are subhuman and their lands are yours to take. So this is the doctrine that let European nations go into Africa, colonize the continent, and enslave the people because they didn't think they were human. It's the same doctrine that let Columbus, who was lost at sea, land in this new world, which is already inhabited by millions, and claim to have discovered it. If you think about it, you cannot, the first sentence of, the, of chapter one says, you cannot discover lands already inhabited. You can steal those lands, you can conquer them, you cannot discover them unless your belief is that the people already there are not fully human. So mm. the doctrine of discovery, it's a, it's a systemically racist, sexist, white supremacist, Christian doctrine that's the fruit of a church that has prostituted itself out to the empire. Now, this doctrine gets embedded into the Declaration of Independence that refers to natives as merciless Indian savages, the Constitution that counts Africans as three-fifths of a person, excludes natives and never mentions women, as well as U.S. Supreme Court cases. As recently as 2005, there's a Supreme Court case referencing the doctrine of discovery by name and basically stating or mimicking what it said back in 1823, Johnson versus McIntosh, that 
the principle for land titles is discovery what gives title to the land. And because natives are savages, we are only occupants of this land, whereas Europeans have the right of discovery to the land, the fee titles, so they are the true title holders. I gave a TEDx yeah. talk on that, those court cases called We the People, the three most misunderstood words in US history, and gives a great mm -hmm. summary of what we see in those Supreme Court cases. Anything you would add to that, Singchan? Yeah, I wouldn't add anything in terms of content. I mean, the book tries to give you a lot of the uh, the details and the court cases. Uh, two things I do want to add, though, is uh, uh, it's kind of outside of that. One is the increased interest in this topic, the Doctrine of Discovery. Uh, okay. You've seen a lot of denominations explored. My denomination, the Covenant Church, just recently kind of went against you know the whole doctrine and said, "Hey, we 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 don't we don't uh, buy into that. We uh, we repudiate the Doctrine of Discovery." Uh, I think the Lutherans did that recently, the Anglicans uh, or the Episcopalians did that recently. So within kind of Christian communities, uh, there is a movement and an acknowledgement, okay, this has been very problematic. Uh, and kind of a bizarre story this morning, I just moved to California to start a new position here. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm driving. Um, uh, Congrats, the, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's, it's been a great move so far. Uh, and I'm listening to public radio. And, and Mark, you're going to get a kick out of this. The topic was uh, Stephen Newcomb's book, Pagans in the Promised Land. And for an yeah. hour on, on radio, they're talking about the Doctrine of Discovery. It's mm. just, you know, so in that sense, it, it feels like folks are beginning to actually engage this particular topic uh, in a more intentional way. The second part of that is uh, what Mark alluded to, which is not just the the very important specific, specific details that goes into the Doctrine of Discovery, but what it means in the bigger picture, especially theologically, spiritually, ecclesially, uh, that there are these, um, the language that we use in the book is imagination and narratives mm. that God, as Mark said, embedded into the American ethos, the American imagination, but maybe more sadly and, and more problematic uh, it really got embedded into the American Christian imagination and that these narratives of white supremacy, these narratives of, of Eurocentric kind of worldview, these narratives that says Europeans uh, possess the image of God and natives do not and Africans do not and Asians do not, that that narrative shapes an imagination that we are still reeling with and dealing with today, reeling from and dealing with today. Yeah. So that's part of the impact of the Doctrine of Discovery. There are so many like, very significant factors related to it, the court cases that come out of it, the impact on the Declaration of Independence and even the Constitution. Uh, but we're seeing that all those things shape the imagination of the uh, American and, and sadly the American Christian, which is now governed more by this imagination of white supremacy that's rooted in the Doctrine of Discovery than actually the word of God, the scriptures, because mm, these things mm. are not compatible. And yet we are governed more or uh, shaped more by that imagination and narrative than actually by the words of God. Yeah. And, you know, I want to keep talking about this, uh, this mythology, right. And the narrative, uh, the narrative of American exceptionalism. And uh, there, you know, there's a, there, an old proverb that says until lions have their own historians, the tales of the hunt will always glorify the hunters. Right. You all have probably heard that one, but they're like the way and you talk about this in the book when when it's the people who have the power and the guns and, you know, are uh, fighting the wars that keep writing history. We keep glorifying ourselves. And Eddie Glaude, Brian Stevenson, a number of folks have said that America is not unique in our sins. She's unique in the mythology and the theology that we've used to justify those, <laughs> not to not to reckon with the evil or to, you know, uh, tell the truth about it. And so I, I think starting with you, Sinchan, maybe say a little bit more about um, how you can put your finger on that mythology. You know, Brian Stevenson has said, you know, we've won lots of battles over rights. Over this, uh, over the decades, you know, right to vote, right, to, you know, all these things, but we keep losing the narrative war. This narrative is resilient, and it, it's yeah. it's everywhere, right? Yeah, the narrative piece has become a very significant part of my thinking, uh, especially as a seminary professor. Um, what's going to form the Christian leaders and pastors and ministers of the next generation? 
And for a long time, uh, we thought individual transformation was the way to go, right? We have good, heroic individuals who are going to lead these great churches. And, and we've actually seen the negative fallout of that. We've seen these mega churches led by these so-called, or we believed were heroic individuals, almost always white men. And then we saw the, the horrific, horrific uh, the shrapnel that went out from these places that exploded and imploded. I mean, we know the stories. We don't have to go over that right now. But what we saw was that just having this heroic individual try to change the world, uh, these kind of like mega church pastors or Christian celebrities, it's not working. It, and it didn't work. And it, the, you know, theologically and ecclesially, it never worked. Uh, but uh, the, the, then we started moving towards, well, then let's change systems. Let's change structures. Uh, let's uh, upend the whole thing and start all over, or let's uh, create new systems and structures. And I believe that works to some extent, but it's never a complete picture to just change individuals or just change structures. You have to have both. But I'm finding this third leg of the stool that I think has been often ignored, which is the narrative piece. You have to change individuals, yes. You have to change systems and structures, yes. But the narratives have such a power in them. This is what Brian Stevens is talking about. This is what a lot of... Um, kind of uh, uh, sociologists and historians and theologians are trying to, uh, to walk through to say these narratives are embedded into our imagination and worldview to such an extent that we reflexively act out of these imaginations and that these narratives are so deeply embedded that we can't help but perform out of these narratives. So it's like a good uh, character actor on, in the movies they get so into the character. They so deeply embody and embed that character that, you know, you run into De Niro at a spar Starbucks, he'll still talk to you like he's some gangster if he's, that's the movie that he's playing in, right? So what we've done is we have so deeply embedded these dysfunctional narratives that our impulse and our reflex acts out of these dysfunctional narratives. And hmm. so the narrative of white supremacy uh, that has... You know, it goes further back, but, you know, we have things like the myth of white uh, Anglo-Saxon purity, the myth of white supremacy, the myth of Eurocentric dominance. Uh, all of these narratives get played out over and over and over and over and over again in the Constitution, in the uh, Manifest Destiny, in the Supreme Court cases, in election after election of American exceptionalism, that these narratives, if it keeps getting played out over and over again, it gets so embedded into the American Christian mind and, and psyche and spirituality even, that that's the thing that we operate out of. And sadly, as I said earlier, there are times when I think many American Christians are more uh, embedded with uh, uh, American exceptionalism, white mm -hmm. supremacy, a white American centeredness than they are with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And mm. that's what we're trying to point out to say, well, let's unearth these very horrific narratives that have become a part of who we are. And unless we recognize that, we're not going to be able to get beyond this. Uh, and this is where I think, I think Mark, uh, you know, your kind of take on truth-telling, uh, especially with the story of, uh, of uh, McNamara, I thought that was a beautiful, beautiful illustration of if we don't change some of these narratives, uh, the winners always tell the stories and yeah. control the narrative. And therefore, we end up with these dysfunctional narratives going even deeper. Mark, I don't know if you wanted to talk about that, that whole McNamara-Gehring. I thought that was a phenomenal connection to these narratives. Yeah, yeah. That, so two of the hardest chapters that people will have to read in this book are chapters 9 and 10. And those are the two chapters that deconstruct the absolute mythology of Abraham Lincoln. And... Uh, I, very briefly, I don't even know how to go into this without just, if you haven't read the book, basically chapters nine and 10, we demonstrate to you, prove to you almost beyond a shadow of a doubt that Abraham Lincoln is one of the most white supremacists and genocidal presidents in our nation's history. So just before we went live on this stream, uh, Sing Chan and Shane and I were talking and Shane was mentioning that they were finally removing a statue of a KKK member from someone down in Tennessee. And I said, well, we still have a memorial to Abraham Lincoln here. So, you know, we're not we're not going anywhere yet. And he is he is one of the most blatantly unapologetically white supremacist and genocidal presidents in our nation's history. 
but he is also held up by many as our greatest president. And that has absolutely nothing to do with what he did. It's all about the mythology we created around him. And so this notion that you were saying, Shane, about the lion and the hunter and the, you know, history is written by the victors. And the challenge facing the United States of America is we have never lost a war that matters. We've never been occupied. We've never given up land. We've never been disarmed. We've never had a regime change. We've never been, had our, been taken out of power. We have essentially won every major war we fought. The, the, the Korean War technically isn't over. Vietnam and Afghanistan, we just pulled out. We, we've never lost a war. And so as a result, for 250 years, we've written our own history. And as we were thinking about how do we go into this deconstruction of Lincoln when he is one of the most holy grails of American history and American politics? Both sides love to claim him, right? The Republican Party loves to remind themselves that they are the party of Lincoln. President Obama was inaugurated with his hand on the Lincoln Bible. I mean, both parties love to claim the legacy of Abraham Lincoln. And yet he is one of the most vile presidents we've ever had. I can only imagine how many native lives were saved because he was assassinated in 1865. Hmm. And so to begin that deconstruction process, I was thinking in that chapter, how in those two chapters, how do we begin to do this? And I was following the story of um, Oscar Groening, who was, um, who he served in the army of our, the, in the Nazi army, um, as he was actually an accountant and he was at um, Auschwitz, and he was in charge of basically taking the possessions that were stolen from the Jews who were brought in and counting them and giving and accounting those possessions to the Nazi regime. He wasn't gassing people. He wasn't shooting people. wasn't even guarding people. He was accounting. And um, he, uh, he saw what was happening, and it made him very uncomfortable. He requested a transfer. It wasn't granted. Finally, he was moved to the front lines where he was captured. He was in, in, in the battles and he was captured. And when the war ended, he was actually in one, of the, in one of the prison camps. And so he went back to Germany and lived very quietly until the 1990s when the, the Holocaust denier movement really began catching hold. And he decided to go public with his story of his service to counteract the, the denier movement. And he had done a major interview with the BBC talking about what he saw at these concentration camps. And he was arrested and tried for complicity to 300,000 murders, which was the number of people who were, who were gassed at, that, at the camp he was at. Mm. And he was found guilty and he, he died while he was appealing his conviction, but he died a, a condemned war criminal. At the same time, as I was thinking about that, a few people had mentioned to me about Robert McNamara. And he was about the same age as Oscar Groening. He lived in the U.S. And he was also serving in World War II, but he was an analyst for uh, General LeMay in the Pacific Theater. And he was taking data from their bombing raids, analyzing it, and then giving feedback of how they could be more effective in their bombing. And so he was noticing that because we were flying our bombers so high to avoid gunfire, we were above the jet stream and people didn't, didn't, follow, didn't know much about the jet stream back then. And so our, our bombs were very inaccurate. They were just falling out of, you know, not near the targets at all. And so he suggested that to improve accuracy, we fly the bombers lower. And he gave that information to LeMay. And LeMay at the time was planning what's known as Operation Meeting House, which was one of the most, it was the deadliest bombing raid in all of World War II. It was more deadly than Nagasaki or Hiroshima. About 100,000 Japanese men, women, and children died in a single night in this, this firebombing of Tokyo. And we chose Tokyo because at that point it was a wooden city. We knew it would burn hotter. And so his, in, in his, the documentary about his life called The Fog of War, he actually says, he says, General LeMay told us 
that if we were if we lost the war, we would all be tried as war criminals. And he said he acknowledged and he was right. Mm. We were acting as war criminals. This is someone serving in the U.S. in the Pacific Theater in World War II, acknowledging that he was committing war crimes in a documentary. Of course, we didn't lose the war. And he was actually awarded a medal when he was when he ended his service there. He was later um, put in charge of the DOD, and he was actually one of the architects of World War of, of the Vietnam War, including the use of Agent Orange, which had tremendous damage in people and Vietnam. And then he was buried with honors at Arlington. Mm. Mm. And so yeah. here we have these two men born at the same time, served at different sides of the war both of them complicit in war crimes and one dies a condemned war criminal and one dies a hero. And the only difference between the two, the only difference is whose side won the war. And so we use that story to introduce what we're going to show with Abraham Lincoln. And we end up actually comparing Abraham Lincoln to Adolf Hitler. And the only difference between Abraham Lincoln and Adolf Hitler is not morality. It's not one was white supremacist and the other believed in equality. No, they were both white supremacists. They were both genocidal. They were both ethnic cleansers. The only difference is Adolf Hitler's army lost his war Mm. and Abraham Lincoln's army won his war. And so there... It was who wrote the history. That's the only difference. Right. And, you, you know, you mentioned that. this. It's so good. You mentioned it in the book, you know, that this is part of Sunshine, like the the American exceptionalism, this idea that that we are God's messianic force in the world. We can do no wrong. So America has a capacity to use violence in redemptive ways, yeah. but nobody else does. Right. You even think right. now of like what what's going on in Afghanistan. I mean, right. the fact that we're we're still selling weapons to Saudi Arabia where, you know, like 15 of the 19 nine 11 terrorists were actually from, you know, I, I, we're doing so much to, and I, and I hear the words of Dr. King when he said, don't let anybody make you think that America is God's messianic force, yeah. you yeah. know, God's policeman to the world. And yet yeah. that's how we often have come to see ourselves. Right. Do you want to add anything to that? Well, yeah, by the way, this is the place, Mark, that I thought, you know, Mark is trying to get me fired. He's trying to get me barred <laughs> from every you know, Christian institution. I'm never going to get any another job in my life if we're going to write this thing. I'm so glad we did because there is there is truth that need, needed to be told. And just to kind of tie that back in with the American exceptionalism idea, the assumption around that what we do is right and good and that we should always be doing better. What we end up doing is, is always better. So that, again, is the narrative that got embedded in. Uh, what we do is, is you know, we, I'm, I'm saying in kind of the general American society sense of the word, is good. And what others do is unacceptable. And so the example that I used is, I don't want North Korea to have nuclear weapons, but right. I don't want the U.S. to have nuclear weapons either. But we don't talk about that. You know, of right. course, North Korea shouldn't have weapons in the hands of a, of a you know, person that doesn't know what he's doing. But, you know, we're the only nation as a nation that actually used these weapons against civilians and used them, you know, to kill people. Yeah. And so the rest of the world is afraid of the U.S. because we actually use those weapons. But we say, oh, that's OK. That's, again, the myth of redemptive violence, the narrative myth of redemptive violence. Americans know how to use violence. That's why we can have unlimited number of guns. That's why we get to hold all the nuclear weapons. But we don't trust anybody else with that kind of war power or that kind of, you know, uh, capacity. But again, yeah. it goes back to that exceptionalism idea. And, and we've got bombs that are now 80 times stronger than Hiroshima, right? In our, in our U.S. arsenal, we have uh, uh, 50,000 Hiroshima bombs in our capacity. So, I mean, this is, and, and I think anyone should say like, 
how many times do we need to be able to blow up the world? But especially those of us who are following Jesus, the Prince of Peace, right? Like of all people should have this suspicion of violence. And, you know, as, as, you, as you're talking about this in the book, um, you, you give the, the uh, metaphor of someone that's just gotten like a, an assault rifle and they're tinkering around. They don't know what they're doing. They're muttering to themselves. And you're like, yeah, you might be worried about that guy, but you might be even more worried about the guy who has an AR-15 over there that has shot people multiple times like you know, like worry about that guy he's got a record right that's and, right and that's kind of the u.s's history yeah and that's something we have to acknowledge and even i just want to make people aware that this is going on even today so right over the past four years during the trump administration we were hyper aware of trump's bombastic words about war and about nuclear weapons and all the things he said. And he was rightfully called out for that by many, many people. However, a day and a half ago, after this horrific terrorist attack, the suicide bombing in Afghanistan, our president, Joe Biden, went on the air. And in his response, he first of all said, we will not forgive. We will not forget, and we will hunt down and hold accountable the exact word he used. We will hold, hunt down and hold accountable those who are responsible for this. Mm-hmm. And then a few minutes later, he literally quotes Isaiah 6 mm-hmm. when talking about people who signed up to serve in our military. Now, I am not knocking people who signed up to serve in our military. And I am deeply grateful and I am mourning the loss of life of not only the American soldiers and citizens who died, but the Afghan people who died. But Joe Biden compared signing up to serve in the U.S. military as similar to Isaiah accepting the call of God to be a prophet to the nations. Yeah. Right. And this is, this is so over the, beyond the line of what you can do, because yes, we are fighting ISIS. We are fighting people from a very extreme religious viewpoint who are trying to set up their own pseudo-religious empire. And Joe Biden is responding by saying, no, we are the superior religious empire. God is on our side. And not only that, we are going to ignore his son. And we're not, not only are we not, are we not going to forget what you've done, we're not even going to forgive what you've done. Yeah, yeah. And so we need to call out the, not only the heresy of Joe Biden, but we need to call out the fact that he was literally, and he goes on in that speech to say that we will use every means necessary to bring these people to account. Now, it's one thing if you say that to someone who's holding a pocket knife. It's another thing when someone says that who has the most powerful military in the history of the world behind him, including mm. nuclear arsenals. Yeah, yeah. And so he is Joe Biden and Donald Trump are identical. Yeah, uh, well our our infatuation with the the military strength of our country is nonpartisan, right? Like uh uh Obama raised the military budget, uh Trump raised Obama's military budget, Biden raised Trump's military budget. So it's just like and, and you know, I I think of um in 2016 we dropped 26,000 bombs. We talked about this last, uh, this, this month on a, a faith forum, Red Letter Christians Faith Forum on War. 26,000 bombs. So it was about 72 per day average. 2016, Obama was president. Yeah. Right. So as we're talking about this, I think like it's important to remember this ingrained, you know, uh, uh, mythology. And, you know, the name of the book, y'all, is Unsettling Truth. So they they don't hold back. And, and I just want to, I think, because folks may not have read the book, um, just to read this quote from Abraham Lincoln, who even now, uh, I saw a C-SPAN study. I, I Googled it when I was reading the book, and he's still the number one uh, president uh, in a poll as, as recent as last year, right? But this is one of his quotes, y'all. I read it to my mom and s- tried to see if she could guess who, re- who uh, said it. This is Abraham Lincoln from, from their book. And they've got a bunch of his quotes. But 
I am not, nor ever have been, in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. I am not, nor ever have been, in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. There is a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two races living together on terms of social and political equality. There must be the position of superior and inferior. And I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. So I just think it's helpful to read that because if you didn't read this book and you, you just think Mark's, uh, you know, uh, uh, picking on Abraham Lincoln unnecessarily or something like that. I think this, this book, if, if you didn't read it, take, take a look at it. Cause it's, it's not just, not just looking at American mythology, but some of the ways the church has been complicit too. Right. So, um, you know, I, I, I we got just maybe 10 minutes left, but I want, I don't want to, to miss the, the opportunity to say, you're not hitting below the belts on this. You're just telling truth. Like you're actually quoting, uh, Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, right? And some of these things. So say just a little bit more zooming out from America, but how this Constantinian um, power goes, I mean, it goes all the way back to Jesus, right? Where the devil's tempting Jesus with all the power of the world, right? And, you know, we, we are always tempted as a church and as the people of God to choose a sword or a bomb instead of a cross. So, Sunshan, maybe you start with us, but... Um, Mark, feel free to jump in too. Yeah, I mean, the power dynamic is was an important part of the na larger narrative. Uh, and we, we clearly see that now, right? The desire to hang on to power. Um, and you see this with some of the argument and conversation around uh, white American Christian nationalism, right? We are losing power and therefore we need to get it back uh, by storming the Capitol. We are losing power and we need to get it back by suppressing the vote of non-whites. You know, there's kind of multiple evidence, you know, evidentiary kind of, you know, uh, data there that shows there's an anxiety about losing power. Uh, and so, again, it's an embedded narrative that actually goes against what scripture teaches. The embedded narrative is Christians should be powerful. Christians should be central. Christians should be primary in American society. Uh, that is not the testimony of scripture. The testimony of scripture is laying, pick up the cross, lay down your life. The testimony of scripture is do unto others. Uh, the testimony of scripture is seek ye first the kingdom of God, uh, and these things will be added unto you. Over and over again, the testimony of scripture, and especially the teachings of Jesus, the red letters, uh, clearly go against the way we are living out the gospel, or pretend we're living out the gospel in the church right now. And so a part of what we're trying to do is, as we're going through the whole story of the ways that power has been misused, narratives have been misused, theology has been misused, uh, is to say, but there is something in, in the scripture that, that goes against that, uh, that these, the, the, the functional ways that we've lived out these places, uh, you know, that's not what God had originally intended. Uh, and so, again, the unsettling truth is this is not what God had intended, but there's also, you know, what God had intended is not what we're trying to live out right now, what we see being lived out right now. Yeah, yeah. Mark, I want you to chime in here. And, and also, yeah. you, and I think you've been, you, you didn't mention that you, uh, you know, ran for president. So <laughs> I think, you know, some might see that as a strange uh, thing to reconcile with the, 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 you know, your book. But I thought of it kind of like when my friend, uh, Larry Krasner, who's a you know legendary defense attorney in Philly, ran for uh, district attorney against everything that the the district attorney's office has been known for, you know, and kind of blow up the whole thing, and he won, you know. But I I think you know for you when you when you think of like your your decision to run for president, you know, and I think some would say like, um, do we change power by working within the system or outside of it. Talk a little bit about how you're navigating that. Yeah. The reason I ran for president and Joe Biden, as well as Donald Trump, demonstrate continually why I chose to run. It was just a few weeks ago, maybe a few months ago, that Joe Biden said that the road to equality is a long and arduous road. Now, there's only one reason why the road to equality is long and arduous. 
it's not because people of color don't understand our value and don't we don't have the wherewithal to sit at table and make decisions. It's not because women don't know how to step up to the plate and, and give their input and say the things. It's not because any of us struggle with our own humanity to know how do we fully participate in this system. The reason the road to equality is long and arduous is because white landowning men don't want to get out of the way. They don't want to give up their positions of power. They don't want to give up their centeredness. And so they are stretching this out to make it as long and as slow of a process as it could possibly be. And, and so I ran for president and the goal of my campaign was to build a nation where for the very first time, we the people actually means all the people. And I had a 100 day plan. So Joe Biden had a 100 day plan to get 100 million shots in people's arms. I had a 100 day plan to remove the racism, the sexism and the white supremacy from our foundations. Not that that would take care of all of our problems overnight, but it would seriously change our foundational stances so that we could actually write just laws. And we could actually remove these things that are in our founding documents. Most Americans believe the United States of America is racist, sexist, and white supremacist in spite of our foundations. That's not true. We're racist and sexist and white supremacist because of our foundations. One of my challenges to people during my campaign was if you think our constitution was written to include everybody, get on a Zoom call much like this one and read the document out loud. You will be appalled at how quickly and how frequently that document is racist, sexist, and white supremacist. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that was why I ran. Now, yeah. when I did run, I frequently told people, I am a Christian, but I am not the Christian candidate. And I am not running to make my nation Christian. If anything, I was running to kick the church out of bed with empire because it's been prostituting itself out to empire for 2000 years, all the way back, 1400 years, all the way back to Eusebius and Constantine. And so this is where I think this whole thing with power and authority, right? I think Jesus's ministry was about teaching his disciples how to relate to power and how to conduct themselves when they have authority. You see his most dire threats to his disciples are when Peter says, you don't have to die. You're the Messiah. You don't have to die. And Jesus calls him Satan. And when the disciples say, hey, we found this guy casting out demons and we told him to stop because he wasn't one of us. And both those times, Jesus literally breaks out the threats of hell. And so it's Eusebius, right? Up until the fourth century, the church is being massively persecuted, including the great persecution in 303 AD, 304 AD. And Eusebius, who in his book, Ecclesiastical History, is holding up for the first several volumes or the first several books of that volume, the piety of the martyrs, once the persecution touches him, once he sees people dying, and he knows the people who are being martyred, his whole attitude towards persecution changes, and he literally ends up propping up Roman emperors as Rome's salvation and not Christ. As, and, 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 and then he, <laughs> so anyway, it's, it's when the yeah. church is being persecuted, it's actually growing and thriving and strong, but when the church marries itself to power, which is what Eusebius does. And then Constantine creates Christendom, this Christian empire. And that is where the church literally, it, it, it forgets Christ. And I, we actually show in chapters three and four of this book, where we talk about how we get from the teachings of Jesus to the doctrine of discovery, how Eusebius, in order to plant this heresy known as Christendom, he literally has to write Christ out of ecclesiastical history and he inserts Constantine as the savior. Who's still recognized as a saint uh, in much of the church, as well as Constantine's mother, right? <laughs> and, and, so, and so this is the problem, is all the way back to, to the birth of Christendom and the writings of Eusebius, the church has literally written Christ out of its 
ecclesiastical history and has inserted Constantine. Because if you want to have a heresy known as Christian Empire, which Jesus was absolutely opposed to, your biggest obstacle is going to be Christ, mm-hmm. who was adamant he wasn't here to plant a Christian Empire. He was here to build a church. And so, so these are the things where I think this whole thing about this dynamic with power is really important. I'm going to put um, a, a link in the chat to a sermon that I normally preach. And we almost use this sermon at, to end the book, to end the book. It's called The Biblical Dynamics of Power and Authority. And I talk about the difference between worldly power and spiritual authority. And when I go out and teach on the doctrine of discovery, usually I will end up giving this if I teach at a church on a Saturday, I will preach this sermon on a Sunday because it it changes your paradigm so much of understanding how the church has been so embedded with worldly power that it no longer understands spiritual authority. So good. So good. So watch that link. And also we got a great sermon uh, by you on the Red Letter Christian site, which incidentally, we are redesigning to make everything more accessible, including the archive of this video. But Sunshine, I want to, I want to, you know, we're going to land the plane here in just a minute, but I, you know, you don't leave people in despair, right? Like uh, you, you've done a lot of work yourself on lament and your book, Prophetic Lament has, you know, been really meaningful to a lot of us, um, your work on that. And, and in the end of the book, you start, you, you really deal with the legacy of 500 years of racism and violence. Uh, uh, and and you, you talk um, about a number of like kind of psychologists and experts um, in, in trauma. Uh, Rachel McNair is one of them that talks about the perpetration-induced traumatic stress, like the, what it does to those who have been a part of the power system that has yeah. uh, crushed so many people. And you, you quote Socrates, who said uh, that uh, uh, the, that injustice, the doer of injustice the doer is more of, miserable than the sufferer. That's it. The doer of injustice is more miserable than the sufferer. I'm sure some people push back on that and say, well, does this center, you know, white folks? Yeah. And you, you're really fair to say this has done damage to everyone. And as Desmond Tutu says, the love of God is bi- big enough to set both the oppressed and the yeah. oppressors free. So point us and, and Mark, feel free to jump in, but start us out, Sungshan, with um, where we can begin, you know, to do yeah. some of the lament, the truth telling and the healing of this, uh, you know, violent history. Yeah, Mark, I think you and I both have seen this where that section does resonate, particularly with Anglo communities uh, who are oftentimes like, what do I do with all this? Right. The, the truth is overwhelming. It's just kind of stacked on top of another. Where do I go with this thing? And uh, the story that Mark tells at the beginning about the, the trauma of his own life and the story of, of uh, the car accident, it's just this powerful illustration that trauma is multifaceted. Now, you know, I, we, Mark and I have talked about, you know, this should be Mark's next book, but he should co-author it with a PhD in psychology, psychologist to kind of talk more about this kind of, you know, the science of trauma, because there's, there's really multiple layers here. Uh, but I think it is important to acknowledge that white supremacy is not necessarily helpful for white people. Uh, it has created an ethos and a culture and a social system that is actually oppressive to white people. Uh, and so, you know, yes, there's a benefit to it. There's a privilege that comes with that. But there's also this flip side of this where the expectation of white supremacy, the expectation of white privilege has actually devastated the community as well. And so, you know, in, in when I wrote about prophetic lament, and this is actually another kind of piece of how Mark and I wrote this book together, because we were talking about these themes. Mark was talking about the doctrine of discovery. I was talking about lament and realized, hey, these two things are coming together here in a very significant way. And that lament is not uh, usually what exceptional or self-perceived exceptional people do. Lament is the practice of those who understand their pain, who understand their suffering. I define lament very simply as the appropriate ecclesial, spiritual, liturgical response for the reality of suffering, pain, and crisis that is in the world. And so what Unsettling Truth tries to point out is there is suffering, pain, and crisis in the world. Uh, it's maybe the most evident when we talk about a police shooting, you know, and when we talk about George Floyd, when we talk about, you know, these kinds of issues around uh, Native communities, it's, it's right in our faces. Uh, but there's also the trauma of white America. 
have white supremacy is actually damage white folks as well. And so exceptionalism prevents you from engaging this very significant and important spiritual discipline. And so the end of this unsettling truth should not be, oh, I feel so bad about myself. Let me go hide in a corner. It should be the proper response, which is I'm a broken person. My society is broken. My narratives are broken and I desperately need God. And that is the beginning of lament and lament leads to the intervention of God, the move of God. And so I think a lot of our frustration and our anxiety is what do we do with this? And I think that first step forward is the appropriate response, which is lament. I, I loved how you pushed back on some of the ideas that, that have become known as white fragility, you know, and, and, and that, that it leaves you kind of paralyzed because especially people of color are either just going to write white folks off or, you know, it doesn't leave a lot of room for, for uh, uh, redemption and movement to happen. And it's interesting that you quote all these psychologists because um, what trauma does is it causes you to act in irrational ways, right? And you name that, you know, it, it, and one of those is denial. And I think now of like, you know, these states like Texas that are saying you, you're not even going to be able to put the word slavery in our history books, right? And you're like, this, this is like, this is a pathology, right? Uh, of saying we are not going to tell that part of our history. So Mark, I want you to, you know, have the closing word and then Sunshine's going to, uh, you know, pray us out in just a second. But, um, both of you, thanks for, you know, this book. Thanks for your friendship. Thanks for, you know, all that you're, you're doing in the world. But um, any closing words, Mark? Yeah. So uh, just this whole, this whole piece on trauma. And I, I Sun Chan's right. We connected around the theme of lament. I was calling the church to lament. And he was writing about how anemic the church is at lament. Um, you know, I point out that, that it, it's almost impossible to lament when you believe in your own exceptionalism. And we started this, this session out tonight talking about this myth of American exceptionalism and how both parties seem to cling to this. And it's, it's a true centerpiece of American psyche. Um, and in the book, we identify American exceptionalism as the coping mechanism of a nation that's in deep denial of its genocidal past, as well as its current racist reality. In other words, white Americans need to cling to this narrative of exceptionalism because if they're not exceptional, if their history has not been ordained and justified by God, if they do not have a land covenant with the God of Abraham and the divine right to commit genocide, then they are just another genocidal, ethnic cleansing, enslaving nation that's never been held accountable. And so this is why our nation, both parties, cling to this narrative of exceptionalism because it, it is what justifies them. It's, it's, mm. it's, it's their coping mechanism for this horrific past. And so that the, the chapters, chapter 11, that really goes into the understanding of trauma, and we lay out the difference between PTSD, which most everyone understands, a, um, a post-traumatic um, uh, post-traumatic stress or post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, which is the results of the horrifying experience to an individual. And then we, we kind of show how that can be generated at a complex level. So not a single event, but multiple events. And that allows it to be passed down to generation. And then it can actually affect entire communities, which is known as historical trauma. Um, which is why how psychologists identify the dissatisfaction in a broad community. So we, we have that PTSD, complex PTSD, historical trauma. And then we lay it out besides this other diagnosis that most people are not aware of, which is known as PITS, a perpetration-induced traumatic stress. And Rachel McNair, who's the psychologist who identified this, she refers to PTSD, our PITS, as being like PTSD in almost every way, except PTSD would afflict the victim and pits would afflict the perpetrator. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so then we, I hypothesize, or we hypothesize in the book, if PTSD has this complex multi-generational communal manifestation, then pits might have something very similar because I have found it tremendously helpful to understand white America as another group of 
traumatized people. When I look at white America through the lens of, well, you're just racist, you have no pigmentation in your skin, you're just racist. Or when I say, well, you're fragile and I have to smooth everything over for you, that doesn't fully let me engage. But when I understand white America as another group of traumatized people, A, it explains a ton of white America's actions, and B, it actually equips me with the tools to keep them from co-opting the narrative. And so when I, that, that chapter of the book, and when I give that in lectures, I'm actually talking directly to people of color. And I need to be very adamant because I'm doing it in front of white people. And so I tell white people, you are not victims of trauma. This is a perpetration-induced traumatic stress, but you are experiencing and reacting as if you had been traumatized. And therefore, I am going to treat you as another traumatized person. And I found, this is one of the most effective tools I've found to be able to keep white America from derailing the work that we're trying to do and the conversations we're trying to initiate. Yeah, yeah. And so those two chapters, chapters 11 and 12, are really important chapters to understand what what are the challenges we have and what are ways to navigate through those challenges so that we can actually bring about, which is one of the goals of the book, this national dialogue on race, gender, and class, something Mm -hmm. on par with the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions of South Africa, Rwanda, and Canada. But let's be honest and not call it reconciliation, because that implies there's a previous harmony. Let's call it what it is. It's we need conciliation. We just need to mediate this dispute for the first time Mm -hmm. and get to a better place. It's great. Thanks. Thanks, Mark. And um, thanks, both of y'all. We're we're going to tell everybody about this book, keep passing it around, Unsettling Truths. And um, just real quick, a a few things before we close, we're going to, Sunshine's going to pray us out and uh, any closing words you got. And those of you that are on Zoom, please hang on. We're going to have just a brief uh, time to say hi to Sunshine and uh, Mark. But I want to tell you a couple of things. First of all, next month, Ready? Drum roll. Boom. Uh, Subversive Witness with Dominique Gilliard. He's going to be our book of the month next month. He's going to join us at the end of the month, just like uh, we do every month. So uh, go ahead and grab this book and read it with me. Read it with a bunch of us at Red Letter Christians. Just came out. A couple other things are uh, we're going to have morning prayer September 1st, uh, as we usually do the first day of the month. All that's on our socials. We're going to have a faith forum this next month in September that's going to be about critical race theory. So Lisa Sharon Harper and a whole bunch of other friends are going to be together to talk about systemic racism. And uh, we're saying a Christ-centered response to the culture war. So we're going to center Jesus, center our faith, but we are going to talk about um, uh, systemic racism. And um, we've got a bunch of stuff going on at the beginning of the month around the Beatitudes. So almost every day uh, from September 2nd to September 11th, we're doing something around the Beatitudes of Jesus. So these are the countercultural values that we see as Jesus blessed the poor, the meek, the merciful, uh, the peacemakers. And that's going to kind of... Um, The finale of that is going to be on September 11th, which is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. We're going to read Dr. King's uh, really historic Riverside speech entitled Beyond Vietnam. We're going to read it together live on September 11th. So join us for all that. We're trying to do all this for free, but we always like to give our guests a little gift. And so if you can give, if you've got money to give, then go to redletterchristians.org and give us a little donation so we can um, keep doing stuff like this. And if you don't have money, then uh, still join RLC and keep in touch with us. So soon, Sean, give us a closing word and prayer. And then those of you on Zoom, hang on for just a minute. We'll see the rest of you soon. Amen. Let's pray together. Um, Gracious God, I'm the image of, of Genesis comes to mind that mm. the deep chaos and the spirit of God hovers over it. And then you speak truth. You speak out of your mouth comes the word of God, which is the truth. And it changes everything. Uh, we confess Lord that we long for that image because we haven't seen it. You've done it many, many times in our history. You have been present in the midst of chaos and confusion, and you have spoken truth and brought peace and hope.
and we confess and acknowledge and lament the reality of the chaos we live in, the confusion, the division, uh, the animosity, just everything that's around us that reeks of sin and brokenness. Uh, but you, Lord, we pray, would hover over us and you would speak truth, truth that changes, truth that transforms. We long to hear what you have to say and the Spirit of God has to say to your people, for we need these words today. We need the words of truth that transform. We need the words of truth that leads to lament, the words of truth that leads to confession and repentance. And we seek these things for the glory of your name. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, uh, Mark, you were going to say, maybe both of you, like uh, where folks can follow you. And Mark, you were going to tell people where they can get a signed copy, right? Thanks, Singshan. Mark, did you want to say that now? I'm on, I'm on Wireless Hogan most every place online. So that's my Twitter. That's my Instagram. That's my Facebook. That's my TikTok uh, and my YouTube channel. So I'm fairly off, off um, active on YouTube with uh, I drink a second cup of coffee right here several times a week and talk about politics and things going on in the world. And I, um, I live stream watching the sunrise two or three mornings a week. And that's on my Facebook page as well as on my YouTube channel and my Instagram page. So people can follow me there. And um, if you want to get a copy, a signed copy of the book, um, unfortunately it, it because Sing Chan and I are across the country. They're signed by me, not by him. Um, but uh, but if you would like to get a signed copy of the book, I can share a link here where um, you can get that. And then um, that's what I know some people like. Usually when you do a speaking event, you like to have these. Uh, you like to um, get a signed copy of the book. And in a virtual world, that's a bit more difficult but we have a link on my website where people can get that. So I'll share that link in the chat here um, if people would like to do that. Cool. And how can folks follow you, Sunshine? Uh, at ProfRa and almost every platform. Um, I'm not really <laughs> social media savvy. I got to be honest with you. Uh, there are no inappropriate dances of me on TikTok, uh, Twitter. <laughs> I've got a lot of followers on Twitter, but I tweet maybe once a year and I'm really embarrassed by that statistic. Uh, but, you know, look for me. And if there's enough of a demand, I'll put out something snarky every once in a while. Sure. Awesome. Thanks, y'all. And uh, we're going to turn off the live stream here and the recording. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, both y'all, for giving us your time. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.